Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, because like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Well, as the kids head out to their classes, uh, thanks, thanks Dawson, wherever he went, for uh, introducing me and Thanks to the Soma Tacoma family for having me this morning. It really is an honor and a, a joy to be with you. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about myself. Uh, this is my, actually my second time with Soma Tacoma. Uh, the first time was back in 2011. My, uh, my friend and I had just moved out to Columbus, Ohio. We were in Southern California for, before that for about 10 years, which is where I met my wife. And we had our first uh, two children. And then God called us out to Columbus, Ohio my friend was from, his wife was from that area. We, we really didn't know anything at all about Columbus. It's a great place, but it was kind of this unknown world to me. I knew Ohio State was there, and that's like about it. And so we, we wanted to experience church planting. We wanted to come alongside this close friend and to do that together. So we moved out to Columbus and, um, and started planting this church. And it was good, and it was really hard. And God taught us a lot in the process. And pretty quickly, we realized that we needed... We needed to, to get some help, and we needed to see some other churches and what they were doing to really help us figure out what it meant to be the church. And we heard about this thing called Soma School, and so we flew out here in 2011 and got to spend a week in Tacoma with this family, and it was really, really encouraging. And here's, here's what the most encouraging thing was for me, actually, was seeing how messy it is. Um, and maybe some of you are laughing about that, but it's easy to, you know, it's easy to see someone talk about something and you get excited about it and you buy into that vision and you want to be the church and you want to really be a family and to be making disciples every day. But then uh, to see that, man, this is a church just like ours that was trying to figure that out and it's messy and it's hard and it's not, you know, it's not always easy. And so that was encouraging for us. We went back to Columbus I think with, with just an excitement to go and try to make disciples in our context and figure out what that would look like there in Columbus. So we did that for about nine years. And then in the last year and a half, uh, God was calling my wife and I into something new. And our church in Columbus was coming around us and praying through that with us. And 
uh, really, through, I won't go into it all, but through a series of different uh, things, really made it clear that we needed to come out here and to join in with DOXA and to spend a few years learning and preparing so that we could then be sent out to give leadership to a church somewhere in the region. So that's what we're doing now, and it's, it's really been good so far. Even with all, we like, we like the mountains and the water, and that trumps the rain. We'll, we'll, the rain's okay because this is just so beautiful. I mean, this is a lot like Ohio, except you have mountains and water and, and all of that. But uh, it, is, it has really been a joy to be here. Uh, I, like I said, my, my wife and I have been married for 16 years. Her name is Beth. She's amazing. She would be here this morning, but we're trying to keep consistency with our kids and being a part of the Doxa family so that it really starts to feel like family to them, which God is doing and has been gracious to do. We have three kids. Our daughter is 11, our son is 9, and our youngest son is 5 years old. And he's fun. I'll just say that. He's, he's, I, I wish you could meet him. He's fun. That's what everyone says. Is Henry's fun. He's like high highs and then really low lows, if you know what I'm saying. And if you meet him on a high high, he's, he's a lot of fun. All right, so we are continuing on in the book of Philippians this morning, and we are just getting past the halfway mark. So we are going to start Philippians chapter 3 today, and if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open up to Philippians chapter 3 if you haven't already done that, or pull it up if you have an app to pull it up on that. We're going to spend our entire time in this passage, so you can just open and stay there. And um, th- this, this letter that Paul has written is such a helpful letter because This is not written to a church that's on fire, right? This isn't the church at Corinth where there's some like significant things in Corinth that he was addressing. This is written really to a church that just needs care and that he wants to encourage and that he is trying to remind them of who they are and of what God has done for them, specifically through Jesus. And so this is a, this is a shepherding letter. This is a letter that he is writing. He's taking advantage of this opportunity. Remember last week he talked a little bit about Epaphroditus, who had brought a gift from the church at Philippi to Paul. Paul's in a, in a prison, probably in Rome. And Epaphroditus brings this gift. And then Paul, now that Epaphroditus, after getting healthy, is going back to Philippi, Paul takes advantage of that to send a letter. Because you can't, like, you know, you can't email the church or send a letter via the post office. So Epaphroditus is the one that is the messenger. And he brings this letter back. And Paul wants to encourage them. And he wants to really encourage them in two specific ways. And this is just, I know you guys have been in this, but just for reminder, so we're all on the same page. There's really kind of two concerns Paul has when he's writing to this church. One is steadfastness in the midst of outside pressure, right? So this is a church that is young, right? All first-generation Jesus followers that have come together, and they face immense pressure from outside. They live in this colony, Roman colony, called Philippi. And Philippi, if, uh, if you, you may know this, but if you don't know anything about that, city was the most Roman of all the non, basically of all the cities that weren't Rome, Philippi was the most Roman. And the reason for that was because after the Romans conquered the Greeks, they left soldiers and officers in Philippi and they gave them land and they gave them authority and they gave them titles and wealth and they said, you get to stay here and you get to make this colony just like Rome. And so Philippi was just like Rome. And what that meant was that Caesar was everything, 
right? So Caesar was more than just a man. Caesar was God. Caesar was supreme. You bow down to Caesar. And along with that, underneath Caesar, they weren't monotheists. So underneath Caesar, you had a whole host of gods and goddesses that for whatever, whatever you needed, depending on what the need was or what you wanted, you would appeal to or you would go to. And so you needed to not only bow down to Caesar, but you needed to fit into the culture in terms of bowing down to all these gods and goddesses. And then just to fit in with all of the, the trappings that came with that, that, of what it meant to be Roman. And here you have this young church that has, in the midst of that world, has been called out and and is trying to follow Jesus together. And they face immense pressure and more than just marginalization, more than just people thinking they're weird, where they're facing persecution. And they are facing people that are against them and want to harm them. And so he, he, he knows that in the midst of this outside pressure, They need encouragement to be able to stand fast, to be resilient. But it's not only that, he also realizes that this church is made up of believers and Jesus followers that come from a lot of different backgrounds. So you have have Lydia, right, who the church meets in her home and that she is this wealthy woman who probably owns land and has a lot of wealth. And then you have people that are slaves And you have people that are Jews, you have people that are Gentiles, and you have people that have come out of all sorts of different backgrounds, coming together as a family, and it's messy, right? Trying to be one, trying to be unified, but they have so many stories, so many different assumptions, so many presuppositions that they've they've brought brought with them. And so he realizes that unity is going to be a challenge for them. And he writes to them and encourages them, remember chapter 2, to take on the mind of Jesus Christ, right? To consider each other as more important than yourselves, the way that Jesus was willing to not regard his equality with God as something to take advantage of, but to humble himself and become a slave and eventually go to the cross for us. So in light of the gospel, he's calling them to unity. And so these two themes of unity and steadfastness, steadfastness in the midst of outside pressure, unity in the midst of inside tensions, are really the concerns that Paul is bringing to the church at Philippi. And the whole way that he, his plan for addressing these concerns is really, really simple. It's remind them of Jesus. I mean, that's what they needed. More than anything else, Right? He doesn't give them a game plan. He doesn't give them strategies for how to deal with tensions you know, when, you, when working with people that are different than you. What he does is he reminds them of the gospel. He brings them to Jesus because that's what they need. And that is what will help them be resilient in the midst of outside pressure and be able to face the inside tension and be unified. So he brings them to the gospel. And this chapter where we are today is no different. Philippians chapter 3. So he starts his, uh, he starts his, uh, or continues on with this passage, right? This is just one letter that would have been read all at the same time. And he says, finally. Now, it sounds a little bit like a preacher who's saying, this is my last point, and then he goes on for like another 30 minutes. But Paul is, he's not saying he's done. He's just saying, he's saying like, he's getting back to, right? Last week he gave this example of Epaphroditus and Timothy, and now he's getting back to, again, the gospel. And he says, finally, my brothers, and you can understand within that, he meant brothers and sisters, family, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. We'll stop there. Right? He starts this, le- this, this part, this part of the letter with a command, 
right? The first command right away, he calls them to joy, to rejoice. This isn't just an aside. This isn't just a pause saying, hey, guys, remember, you got to be happy. This frames the entire section we're about to look at. He's saying rejoice. He's commanding them to rejoice, to have joy. And in fact, throughout Philippians, 16 different times, the word joy is used in some form. It's a really common theme in this book. And here's the reason. If he's reminding them of Jesus throughout this letter, then the result of that is going to be and should be, it has to be joy. Joy flows out of understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for us and how that changes us. And so he's calling them to joy, and he commands them to rejoice. He's calling them to a resilient joy. And by the way, if, if this is who they are, then imagine what they look like in the midst of this, this Roman colony, in the midst of Philippi. This group of believers that come from all backgrounds that are marked by resilient joy in the face of oppression and persecution. And what do you think when people saw that, what do you think they thought about Jesus? Calls them to resilient joy. He goes on then to give what, what we're going to lay out as I think kind of three reasons for this joy. All of them connected to Jesus, right? Because that's his whole goal, calling them back to see Jesus. But three different reasons that he's calling them to rejoice. And here's the first one. And if you have note takers, I'll try to make these really clear. This is just really simple. Uh, the first one is this, rejoice because our security is in Jesus. So the first thing he's going to remind them of is be happy, have joy, rejoice because our security is in Jesus. Now you might, it might seem like he's all of a sudden shifting gears because right after saying rejoice, he then says to write the same things to you as no trouble to me and is safe for you. So this is something he said before. And then he goes into verse 2 and he says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Three times, he gives three commands, look out, look out, look out. And he gives three different, and he's talking about the same people, but he calls them three different names. And Paul is like getting saucy here, right? He is using biting language that in, he's intentionally choosing to reveal who these people truly are. And he's calling the Philippian church to look out specifically for these people. Now, who are these people? We don't, know that, we don't know if these people actually had come into the church already. But Paul knows that these people are going around and are going into churches all over the Roman Empire, and they are calling people to stop trusting in Jesus alone. And they're calling people to, to not think that Jesus is enough, but to think that it's Jesus plus something else. Right, so specifically what they're calling people to, and these are most likely Jewish people that are coming into churches and saying, yeah, Jesus is great, great, great person, great man, even, yes, died for us, rose again, we put our trust in him, but if you really are going to be a part of his people, he was Jewish, and you need to become Jewish too. So Jesus is not enough, and if you're not a Jew, then you need to be circumcised. To know that you truly are a part of God's people, you need to take on what for them, for the Jewish people, for centuries was the outward sign for men of, of being a part of God's people was circumcision. And so they're coming into churches basically questioning 
whether or not Jesus alone is enough in saying not only do you need Jesus, but you also need to become Jewish. Now circumcision, as I said, it was an outward sign of being a part of God's people, of being under his covenant in the Old Testament. It started with Abraham and continued on with God's people beyond Abraham. But what this ultimately pointed to, it, right, so you think about this outward sign. It was a sign that you were set apart for God. But this outward sign of physical circumcision pointed to the need for God's people to be circumcised in their hearts. Because the, the problem was, this outward sign wasn't enough. People were set apart outwardly. They were circumcised physically, but they still weren't set apart for God, and they would walk away from him over and over and over. And then Jeremiah says, what you really need, Israel, is not physical circumcision. What you really need is for your heart to be circumcised or to be set apart for God. And this, my friends, was accomplished by Jesus for us, who came so that our hearts could be transformed and set apart for God. And so the problem here is that these teachers are coming in and essentially saying that what Jesus did wasn't enough. And we need to go back to that imperfect picture, that imperfect sign of physical circumcision. And he uses biting language, right? He calls them dogs, evil workers, and those who mutilate the flesh. And just real quickly, like dogs, I, love, I have a dog, got a chocolate lab, 80% of the time, I love them, right? I won't tell you about the other 20% of the time. But in their culture, dogs were not something that people loved. They were, they were impure, they were dangerous, they were scavengers. And so the Jewish people often called the Gentiles dogs. And Paul reverses that and says, you are the dogs. He says, you're workers of evil. You're those who mutilate the flesh. And that's a specific word. He takes the Greek word for circumcision and changes one part of it and basically says that you are mutilating the flesh. He's calling them out and making it really, really clear that these people are dangerous and we need to watch out for them. Now, why is he so concerned to warn them? It's because Paul does not want them to believe for a minute that they have any hope outside of Jesus Christ. That it's not their, their identity and their security in Christ is not to be found in, their, in, in becoming Jewish or in some physical outward sign. Their identity and security is found only in Jesus. And so he goes on to say, we are the circumcision. And what he means by that is, we are the true people of God. Not those who are physically circumcised, but those who have been set apart for God in our hearts. And he says, here's what the true circumcision of the true people of God look like. If you look at verse Three, he says, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's how you know if you are the people of God. It's not this outward sign. It's not taking on a Jewish identity. Here's what it is. Paul is reminding them. It's that we rely on the Spirit's power. We boast only in Jesus Christ and we put no confidence in the flesh. Helplessness, dependence, and all hope in Jesus is what defines us as Christians. That we have no power in ourselves. That it's only the Spirit of God that empowers us and gives us the strength to do what God's called us to. That our boast then and our glory is only in Christ Jesus. That we can't boast in anything else except Jesus and Jesus alone. And therefore we can put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh is basically 
anything apart from the grace of God. And that we cannot put confidence in anything apart from the grace of God. Now Paul goes on to say, if anyone basically should be confident or have reason for confidence in the flesh, I should be able to have the have reason, right? So he goes into what seems a little like bragging, but it's intentional. He's trying to say, if anyone can be confident in, in being a good Jewish person, because that's the problem he's addressing here at Philippi, then I could be confident. And he lists, right? You, you look at his list. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is the day that all Jewish males were to be circumcised, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of only two tribes that didn't walk away like the northern kingdom. So the tribe of Benjamin was one of the good ones to be from. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, right? Those, the Pharisees known for meticulous keeping of the law. As, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, so zealous was he for the law of God that anyone that he perceived going away from it, he was willing to even put to death. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Not claiming here that he actually was righteous before God, but basically saying the way that the Jews defined righteousness in terms of purity and and keeping certain rules, I was blameless in those things. And he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. How do we put confidence in the flesh? Maybe maybe you think um, that's not you. Because circumcision's problem, guessing for no one here, you're like saying, yeah, I'm, I'm secure before God because I'm circumcised. That's probably not an issue, I would guess, here in Tacoma, like it was here in the first century. But how do we put confidence in the flesh? What does that look like for us to put confidence in the flesh? If you, if you think about confidence and maybe think of it more in terms of security, And that's really what this is about. It's not about circumcision. That's just the example. That's the problem. That's what these false teachers are saying. This is really about security. How do you know that you're secure before God? Where is your security based that you know for sure that you are a part of God's people? They're saying you need to be Jewish to know that you're secure. But how do we know? What is is our security that we are a part of God's people? Where do we find security then outside of Jesus? Think about it that way. Where is our security based outside of Christ? For me, I grew up, uh, I was talking to Tim earlier, I grew up in Virginia, and he lived in Lynchburg as well for for a period of time. That's the town I grew up in. If you don't know Lynchburg, it's the part of Virginia that really fits more Bible Belt than, um, than northern Virginia. So it was like really more of the south. It was cultural Christianity. It was Lynchburg. So you had, you know, churches on every corner, uh, and it was... And I went to a Christian school, and it was really an ecosystem of Christianity that was all about how you perform. There was a legalism in the school I went to, and my parents didn't really buy into that, but it was, it was, just, it was the current that, our, that, that the church swam in in the town I grew up in. And what I then heard growing up was, if I perform and if I do well, I'm okay. Right? So if I... If I do the right things, if I keep the rules, if I, if I succeed, then I'm okay, then I'm secure. And so what it led to for me and my story was 
believing that I needed to perform and striving and striving and striving and trying and trying and trying to be the person that I thought I needed to be, to be the person that I thought people wanted me to be in order to be secure. And what it resulted in was a huge amount of insecurity for me because I could never be enough. And maybe you resonate with that. You just feel insecure because you don't know if you're living up to what people expect of you. That was me. It led as I then went into serving even in college and after college full-time in ministry to me basing my security on how I performed in ministry. So if I get to preach or to teach, how did that sermon go? If I lead something, how did I lead and how did people respond? And if, if I felt like I did well or I got good feedback, then I felt secure and I felt good. But if a sermon tanked, if I didn't lead well, if people questioned what I was doing, then I felt so insecure and so unsure of who I was. And what God then brought to me, and if you remember at Jesus' baptism when the heavens opened and the Father's voice calls out, this is my beloved son, you are my beloved son, and with you I'm well pleased. And what the Father graciously reminded me and taught me and brought to me was that through my union with Jesus, he looks at me and he says, Ken, you're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Ken, you, you led something poorly or you're a bad dad. You didn't parent your kids well or you, you preached a sermon that was just terrible. Ken, you're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And that security, that I'm still asking God to help me rest in that and believe that, then freed me up to truly give myself without worrying if I would be accepted or received. What is it for you? Where do you find your security? It may be like me. It may be in ministry success and maybe in a, your gifting or your skill that you think, if I do well at these things, that that's what makes me secure. It may be success in your career. Maybe for some of you, it's just managing sin. You think, if I can just keep away from some of these big sins I struggle with and just manage them and stay clean, then I'm secure before God. Maybe it's knowledge, if you can gain more knowledge or if you have consistency in spiritual disciplines. Maybe it's the validation of friends or loved ones that need you. Maybe it's the health of your church. Maybe it is your parenting and the behavior of your kids that helps you feel good and secure. And the problem with this is, as all of you I think realize, when you fail in any of these things, and you will, you're shattered and you have no security. All of these are very bad at giving us security before God. All of them because we will fail at all of them. And here's what Paul wants the Philippians to remember and what I think he's calling us to remember is that our security is found only in Jesus Christ. Apart from his grace, we have nothing. We have nothing. And if we believe that and if that's real, then we can rejoice, right? That's why he calls them to rejoice because they are secure, they're secure. They don't need to live in fear or insecurity or doubt. They're secure not because of anything they've done, 
Not because they've been good enough, not because their unity is so great that God now looks on them and smiles and says, this is the church I love, you're such a great church. None of that is because of Jesus and Jesus alone that gives them their security. And he says, rejoice because you are secure in Christ. And here's the second reason. It wasn't just that Jesus was a better grounds for security, but Jesus was more beautiful and more glorious than anything else. And so Paul says, rejoice because Jesus is better. Not only rejoice because in Jesus you're secure, right? It's not just about you're now secure before God, but rejoice because Jesus is better. And if you look in verse 8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So it's not only that he counts all of his achievements as loss, but he counts everything, everything as loss because of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now Paul's story, this was very real. And you you hear, this is right, this is personal. This is his own story. And he did lose everything. Not only did he lose all that he had gained in terms of his success. I mean, he was, he was on the track to be, in the Jewish world, one of the greatest leaders and looked up to. And he lost all of that. But not only that, he then took on incredible suffering and incredible loss. In 2 Corinthians 11, in a passage where he's having to, he's having to defend his apostleship, He gives a list of the ways that he has suffered. Almost reluctantly, he gives this list. And listen to the suffering and loss that Paul faced. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And when you were stoned, you weren't stoned like a little bit, right? It was meant to kill you. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And here's the last one, and this hits home for me. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He had faced real loss. And he's writing this letter, remember, sitting in a Roman prison as he writes this letter. And he's calling them to rejoice. And the reason he's able to face that loss, to not only lose all that he had gained, but then to take on an incredible amount of suffering and loss is because he saw on the road to Damascus the risen Savior for how glorious and beautiful he is. For Paul, everything changed on that road when Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Everything changed because it's in that moment that the scales on Paul's eyes fell off. And even though he was blinded physically, the eyes of his his heart were opened. And he saw Jesus for how beautiful he truly is, 
how worthy he truly is, how glorious he is, that he's better than all else. And from that point on, Paul, without any second guessing, was willing to say, I will forsake everything so that I might know this Savior more. And this kind of knowledge that he's talking about here isn't just like he wanted to learn more facts about Jesus, right? He's not like, oh, that's an interesting person. I, I want to study him more and learn what he has to say. No, Paul wanted to know him. This is intimate, relational knowledge that Paul is talking about. My wife and I, when we started dating, been married for 16 years and dated a few years before that. And we had, we had just met in college and I wanted to get to know her, right? I wanted to know her. So the, one of the first things I did is I, in, in a journal, I barely ever journaled, but I did in this write a list of the things that Beth liked, right? So she likes daisies instead of roses. She, uh, she, she liked certain kinds of foods. She liked certain kinds of music. She liked certain places to go. She didn't like some things. And I would keep this running list, and I would keep adding to it to try to understand who this person was so that I could show her I was interested in her. I wanted to know her. And that list grew. And then as we then got engaged and got married, my knowledge of her went from understanding her likes and dislikes to knowing her hopes and her fears and her joys. And that knowledge continued to deepen and increase to where even now, this past year for Beth and I both has been a year where we've been able to understand each other in ways we haven't understood each other before and understand what's going on even in, in ways that we ourselves didn't know. And so this is the kind of knowledge Paul's talking about. It's ever-growing. It's deepening. And Paul says, since the day I saw Jesus, I wanted to know him more. I wanted to know him, to know what, what makes his heart beat, to know what he loves, to know what makes him happy. I want to know him. And he would give up all of his success, and he would take on incredible suffering in order that he might know him. Don't, get Paul, don't hear Paul saying here that he's taking on suffering as some obligation, that he now feels like he has to pay Jesus back for all the things that he had done to that point. It's not it at all. Paul joyfully faces the suffering before him because in comparison to knowing Jesus, it's nothing. And he wants to know Jesus. And this leads to our last reason that Paul calls us to rejoice. It's not just to know Jesus. And if you picture, think of like an art collector, right? So um, I'm not an art collector. I mean, I, I guess I am. I buy prints, <laughs> right, for $30. But you think about an art collector that actually like has, is able to go and buy an original work of art that they find beautiful, Right? And so they see this work of art, and they're willing to make an incredible sacrifice, sometimes millions upon millions of dollars, to buy that piece of art so that they can appreciate it and gaze on it, that it's beautiful to them, that that art has a glory, and they want that to be something they see every day. But Paul isn't just saying that we have Jesus before us hanging on the wall, and we get to gaze at him and see him for how beautiful he is, and that that's all. Because Paul goes on to say, not only do we know him, but we gain him. We gain Christ. And that's the third reason he calls them to rejoice. Rejoice because we gain Christ. He's better than everything else, and we gain Christ. He goes on to say in verse 9, 
the end of verse 8 actually says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ. Now he defines that because what does that really mean to gain him? He defines that saying to gain Christ is to be found in him, not having a righteousness that's my own, but his righteousness that comes through faith. That I gain him first through being found in him. So it starts with union. All right, so here's, here's what's amazing is Jesus isn't just this amazing Savior, glorious Savior that we get to gaze at and see and appreciate and worship, but we get to be united to him. We get union with him. We get to be with him. And not only that, he goes on to say, and in being found in him and being united with him, we then, in verse 10, know him and the power of his resurrection so that we share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not only do we get union with him, but we become like him. And that's the hope, is it not? We don't just look at Jesus and appreciate him, but we are united to him so that we are transformed to become like him. To be with him and to become like him. This isn't just, it starts with us gaining his righteousness and his death and his resurrection, right? Because we have a problem. We don't have a righteousness of our own. So his is given to us. And his death takes our place so that we don't have to die. And his resurrection goes before us so that we can one day rise again. So all of that is ours. But it's not just something future. This becoming like him and being transformed starts today. That we, through our union with him, as we put our faith in him, and we're united to him, and his righteousness is given to us so that when the Father looks at you and me, he sees us as completely righteous, and that then we begin a process of transformation, that we are formed into the image of Jesus. And this process continues for the rest of our life until one day we rise again from the dead as people who are whole, made into the image of his Son. This is our hope. And this is why when we face suffering, we can face it. Because as Paul says, this suffering is part of our transformation. And I think this is what we all long for. If, even if maybe you're here and you're not sure if you want to follow Jesus, I would say that at the core, we all long for wholeness. We long to find our true selves. We long to be the people that we really could be or made to be. Robert Mulholland in his book, Invitation to a Journey, which I highly recommend, it's all about this process of being formed into the image of Jesus. He writes this, in reality, however, the image of Christ, in reality, however, the image of Christ is the fulfillment of the deepest hungers of the human heart for wholeness. The image of Christ is the fulfillment of the deepest hungers of the human heart for wholeness. The greatest thirst of our being is for fulfillment 
and the image of Christ. The most profound yearning of the human spirit, which we try to fill with all sorts of inadequate substitutes, is the yearning for our completeness in the image of Christ. All of us desire this, I think. We long for wholeness. We know that there's something about us that's incomplete. No matter what we try to put on and what we want people to perceive, we know that at the core there's something about us that is broken and incomplete. And we long to be made whole. And we're looking in all sorts of ways to find wholeness, to find our true selves. And it's only in being transformed into the image of Christ that we can truly find it. And that's why Paul is calling them to rejoice Because through Christ, we're united to him. We're given his righteousness. So that when God looks at us, he sees us as his son, as Jesus. But not only that, he then begins a process in our lives through our suffering. Right? It's through our suffering that if we're going to be united with Jesus, then we're united with him and his suffering, and that he will bring suffering into our life. We will hurt. But even that, it is to form us to look more like Jesus, the suffering servant. That we can be joyful in our suffering because we know that that suffering is forming us to look more like our Savior. And that The suffering does not last, but after death comes life. After suffering comes resurrection. And we're not only united with him in suffering, but we're united with him in his resurrection. And that we will be formed over years and years and years more and more to look like Jesus. And that one day we will rise again and we will stand complete and whole, transformed to look like Jesus. And we will find our true selves. So Paul says rejoice. Some of us this morning maybe, I don't know most of you, but some of us maybe right now are being robbed of joy. Because we're still clinging to some like small trace of confidence in something apart from Jesus. And let me just encourage you to say, to give it up. It's not going to work. Jesus can only be our source of confidence and security. Some of us this morning maybe are still wondering if he's worth it. We're intrigued maybe by Jesus and we find him fascinating, but we're scared. Maybe we see those who have given up everything to follow him and that scares us. We're not sure if we want that. Is he worth it? And don't miss, friends, the testimony of Paul. He's just one man and there's thousands and thousands of Christians throughout history and even today who have given up everything, not because they thought they owed God anything, but because Jesus was worth it. He was better than everything else, more glorious, more beautiful. He's worth it. And I believe that, but I also need help with my unbelief, right? And maybe you're feeling the same way. But each day that I taste that, I know it to be true, and I want more of it. And some of us this morning maybe are hurting. And here are the deep waters that God brings us through, maybe not today, but in our life 
and your suffering. And what we need to remember is that in your suffering, you are united with Christ. You're united with him, the one who suffered for us. And that in this suffering, he is forming you more and more into the image of Jesus. And that after this, death comes life and resurrection and completeness and wholeness. And that is what the Spirit is doing in us. So take hope if you're hurting. God is in this time forming you to look more like our beautiful, glorious Savior. We're going to, in a second here, take communion and um, invite Alex and John to join me back here on stage. But as we take communion, here's what I want us to think about. Right? As, we, as we take the bread and the blood, the bread and the wine, representing the body and the blood of Jesus, one thing that we're declaring is that we have no confidence in anything but him, right? That we need his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. But not only are we declaring that we have no confidence outside of him, we're declaring as we take this meal that he is better than everything else and that we want him, right? And we want more of him. And so take communion saying, I want more of you, Jesus. And not only that, as you take this communion, remember that through his coming and living the life you could never live and dying the death you should have died and rising again in your place, that through that, his life is yours, his righteousness is yours, his death is yours, and his resurrection is yours. And you will be transformed and complete one day because of what Jesus has done. And we take communion remembering that and knowing that our only hope is in him. So if you'd like to take communion this morning, if that's you, and it may be, you may be saying, I believe, but I just also struggle. That's okay. Join the club, right? That's why we need this. So come and receive Jesus, the one who gives us security, the one who's better than everything else, and the one through whom we will be transformed. Receive him this morning, right? We're gonna... As we start to sing together, you'll have opportunity to come forward. There's tables on both sides. Um, Please come and receive Jesus. If you'd like to, to even sit with someone next to you and receive this together, that's great. But if you if you want to do this on your own, that's great too. But remember, our only hope is in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us and then we'll continue on. Father, we have no hope outside of your son, Jesus, Lord. We have no hope in our flesh. We have no hope apart from your grace. And we want to remember that this morning, Lord. Thank you that you didn't leave us hopeless, but you sent your son to come and to live for us and to die for us and to rise again for us so that we could be united to him, that his life could be ours. And Lord, that you're forming us more and more into his image. Lord, we look to him and we put our hope in him. If there's anyone here this morning, Father, that has not found 
that hope. I pray that you would open their eyes and help them to see Jesus. Give them a Damascus-like moment this morning like Paul had where they see the beauty of Jesus and they see that Jesus is calling them to follow him and he doesn't ask them to clean themselves up or to prove themselves, but he welcomes them and says he's done it all for them. Lord, work in their hearts and open their eyes this morning. It's in him that we put our hope. In Jesus' name.